Hello, welcome to the Daily Objective brought to you by the Ayn Rand Center UK. Today I'd like to address the question, did Tchaikovsky commit suicide? By the way, I was having some internet problems just before starting, so apologies in advance if anything goes wrong today, but let's hope it doesn't. This is a question that's very interesting for me personally, because it's one where my own opinion has changed over the past few decades. I'd like to begin by laying out some of the basic facts, and then I would like to explore them from a few different angles. First of all, on November 6, 1893, Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky died at the age of 53. He died in St. Petersburg at the apartment of his brother, Modest Tchaikovsky. The official cause of death by the physicians who attended on the composer was ruled to be cholera. And indeed, during the whole week of the composer's illness, there were regular public announcements and bulletins on the progress of his illness. And uh, it seemed at the time that the cause of death was widely accepted by much of St. Petersburg society. But even shortly following the composer's death, there were many people who said something's not quite right here. And there were some questions about whether there was another cause of death, whether suicide was involved, whether perhaps uh, Tsar Alexander III had ordered the composer to commit suicide. And then there was another version of the story, which I'll explain in a moment. First of all, a bit of necessary context. There was indeed a cholera epidemic going on in St. Petersburg during the period where Tchaikovsky became ill and died. But in the 19th century, cholera was primarily regarded as a disease of the lower classes. It was particularly contagious and prevalent in slums, in poor neighborhoods. And Tchaikovsky, of course, by this time was a world famous composer, conductor. He was an international celebrity. And the idea that someone of his social class should die of this disease had a certain degree of stigma attached to it. Now, it is true that cholera did affect all members of Russian society. In fact, even the composer's own mother had died of the disease nearly 40 years before her famous son, but it was still regarded as primarily a disease for poor people. And this triggered some suspicions and some questions in the years following the composer's death. The many rumors and the many theories surrounding Tchaikovsky's suicide very often are closely tied to the question of the composer's sexual orientation. Now, it was pretty much an open secret among the composer's family and friends and musical associates that he was gay, that he'd been involved in many encounters with male prostitutes throughout his life. That was not at all uncommon. It's also true that homosexuality was officially illegal in 19th century Russia. It was a criminally punishable offense. And so a public exposure for any figure could potentially be damaging personally and could even have criminal and other implications. I want to examine one particular story or one particular version of the suicide story. And this was one that emerged about four decades ago, four, four and a half decades ago. And it originated with a Russian musicologist named Alexandra Orlova, who emigrated to the West around 1979, so approximately 44 years ago. Orlova had this particular story, let's call it the court of honor story, which had been told to her 
by a historian of her acquaintance, which had been told to him by another historian. So this is a, a second or third hand story. But this, the background is something like this. In his teens, Tchaikovsky had been a pupil at the School of Jurisprudence, the Imperial School of Jurisprudence in St. Petersburg, which, by the way, was an all-male school, not at all uncommon in the period. Now, the story goes that shortly before Tchaikovsky's death in November of 1893, some of his fellow schoolfellows at the Imperial School of Jurisprudence had convened a court of honor. Apparently, Tchaikovsky had been involved in a relationship with uh, the son of a particular nobleman, some young member of the noble class. And the members of Tchaikovsky's alma mater were concerned about some sort of scandal or some sort of a disgrace. So they invited the composer to this court of honor where they went through all the facts of the case and they ordered, ordered the composer to commit suicide by poison, by taking arsenic or something of that nature. And so this story was passed down through various ge generations of students of the School of Jurisprudence, eventually finding its way to Miss Orlova, who popularized this theory in the West. And it was taken up by the prestigious Grove Dictionary of Music and Musicians, which is generally considered the gold standard of scholarship in music. And where I first heard about this theory was through um, monumental four-volume four biographical and critical study of the composer by a British musicologist named David Brown, the late David Brown. And he took this story at face value. He took it seriously and wrote uh, actually a number of books on the subject. Now, there are a few problems with this whole Court of Honor story, and they have to do with the social and cultural context, as well as the context of the School of Jurisprudence as such. And I'll mention that very briefly now. There, in spite of the fact that homosexuality was officially illegal in 19th century Russia, that doesn't mean it wasn't widely practiced. There were intellectuals, artists, indeed, even members of the imperial family, members of the Russian government who were homosexual and openly so, who were even flaunted their lifestyle. And sometimes they would be punished, but very often they would be punished for political reasons. If they fell out of favor with the establishment, then their homosexuality would be used against them. But there were many prominent public figures who were able to live quite uh, debauched lifestyles and actually get away with it. Uh, by the standards of 19th century Russian society, Tchaikovsky was actually very discreet about his private life. He kept everything very private, very personal, and while his lifestyle was well known to his family, including his brother Modeste, who was also a homosexual, and his many musical associates, it wasn't well known to the public at the time. It's also worth bearing in mind that Tchaikovsky had a certain prestige by the end of his life. By the, say, the last decade of his life, he was a major public figure, uh, international public figure, revered not only in Russia, but abroad as well. He had many conducting engagements in all the major European centers. He was invited to the inaugural concert at Carnegie Hall in the United States, and he enjoyed the personal admiration and friendship of the Tsar, Alexander III. Keeping all of these things in mind, it stands to reason that even if even if Tchaikovsky had been accused of some sort of wrongdoing, very likely the Tsar, who was a great admiration, a great admirer of the composer's music, might have been able to protect him in some way. 
Another reason for doubting the whole court of honor story of the School of Jurisprudence is that the reputation of the Imperial School of Jurisprudence was far from favorable. In fact, many of the students, including some of Tchaikovsky's own school fellow, school fellows had a reputation for debauchery. Uh, some of the school's official songs had to do with celebrations of sodomy and homosexuality. So the idea that the school was really concerned with protecting its reputation doesn't hold very much water. Now, there's one last bit of evidence that I want to examine because I'm, I'm trying at least initially to steel man this story, this suicide or court of honor story. There's one last bit of evidence that I want to offer, and it has to do with Tchaikovsky's last major work. When Tchaikovsky died on November 6th, just nine days prior to that, he had conducted the world premiere of his Symphony Number no. 6 in B minor, the famous Pathétique Symphony. This is a very unusual symphony by any standards, even by the standards of Tchaikovsky's own music. And particularly what makes this symphony so controversial in light of the rumors surrounding the composer's death is its fourth and final movement, the finale of the symphony. If you think of some of the great symphonies from earlier in the 19th century by Beethoven, by Schubert, by Brahms, Bruckner, other composers. The fourth and final movement, the finale, is usually something upbeat, cheerful, triumphant, whatever. But the character of this symphonic finale is very, very different altogether. It's permeated by a sense of tragedy, foreboding, fatalism. And to illustrate my point, I would like to play for you just a little bit of the beginning of the finale of this symphony. And I have to say, for me, this was one of the most striking bits of evidence from the period where I myself accepted the, the whole suicide story, which I'll, I'll explain in more detail in a moment. So here's just the opening minute or so of the finale of the Pathétique Symphony. Now that scarcely sounds like your typical cheerful, upbeat, optimistic symphonic finale. This is music that's permeated by a real mood of tragedy, of despair. And indeed, much of this finale continues in that vein. Particularly significant in this connection is the very end of the symphony, the very end of the finale, which continues with this tragic music, but gradually dies away. The music sinks gently lower and lower into the string, into the low strings, the cellos, the double basses. And the music ends with this gradual dying away, this gradual 
softening and deceleration of the rhythm. At the, in the very closing minutes of the symphony, you actually get the sense of a heartbeat gradually stopping in the double basses uh, with the, this decelerating rhythm in the double basses. And there was a, an interpretation at the time. Uh, so this, Tchaikovsky conducted the world premiere of this symphony nine days before his death. Shortly after Tchaikovsky's death, one of the prominent St. Petersburg conductors presented this symphony yet again. And this time, the audience, knowing of the composer's end, knowing that the composer had just recently died, interpreted this as a kind of poem. And this had a foreshadowing or a foreboding of his own end. This is something else that we'll want to explore. Uh, but first, let me give you a little bit of necessary context. And I, I want to broaden the view here and talk about what exactly was Tchaikovsky's sense of life? What exactly was Tchaikovsky's view of his own life, of human existence as such? It needs to be said that Tchaikovsky, like many 19th century Russians, was a determinist. More specifically, Tchaikovsky was a fatalist. He really believed that fate was an actual force. In fact, in the program notes for his fourth symphony, Tchaikovsky refers to, quote, that fateful, baleful force that prevents the impulse to happiness from achieving its goal that hangs above your head like the sword of Damocles, end quote. This is an idea that Tchaikovsky took very, very seriously, and it's clearly embodied artistically and musically in many of his major works. More specifically, Tchaikovsky has a kind of musical leitmotif, a kind of musical idea that he associated with fate. And it's the uh, idea of a descending musical scale, a descending stepwise melodic progression, which actually you can hear at the beginning of that finale. Let's listen to it again. The beginning of the finale of that symphony. Listen in particular for the descending scales here. And then there's a gradual ascent, ascent in pitch, but then that's followed by another descent in pitch. This idea of descending scales being associated with fatalism is something that permeates a lot of Tchaikovsky's work, beginning with his most famous opera, Yevgeny Onegin, based on the novel in verse by Alexander Pushkin. There, that opera begins with a short prelude for the orchestra, which introduces this descending scale idea, which becomes associated with the heroine, Tatiana, and her hopeless love for the uh, fop Onegin. And this idea of fatalism is something that recurs in many of the composer's major It occurs in another opera, the last three symphonies, the fourth, fifth, and sixth symphonies. Each of those symphonies has some sort of a musical idea or a musical theme associated with fate that embodies some kind of descending stepwise melodic figure or descending progression. Now, how does this tie in with Tchaikovsky's personal life? Well, Tchaikovsky certainly believed that he was fated to be abnormal in his sexual habits and sexual proclivities. And to be sure, this is something that caused him quite a bit of grief and quite a bit of agony earlier in his life. 
And it, in fact, was one of the factors that motivated Tchaikovsky in 1877 to enter into a very ill-advised marriage with one of his former pupils, one Antonia Milyukova, uh, an absolutely disastrous fiasco. I mean, Tchaikovsky had no physical interest or any other kind of interest in a, in a relationship with a woman. Almost certainly he entered it into this marriage as a way of concealing from the eyes of the public his true nature, his true life. A terrible disaster. After a few weeks, he fled from his wife in disgust, uh, never, never returned. Another, and that was around the time that he composed both the opera Yevgeny and Yegin and his Symphony Number no. 4. Now, about a, a decade or just under a decade later, Tchaikovsky was grappling with another personal demon, which was his feelings for one of um, a, a young male member of his own family, specifically his nephew Vladimir, who was the, the son of Tchaikovsky's sister, Alexandra, for whom Tchaikovsky conceived this obviously forbidden and very inappropriate passion, which to all accounts was never consummated or reciprocated, but it resulted in some guilt on the composer's part, some of which may have fed into the, the symphony number no. five, which is also very much concerned with fate and with defeat. But what was Tchaikovsky's situation in the last year of his life in 1893, around the time that he composed his symphony number no. six? He was a world famous celebrity who had undertook numerous conducting tours across Europe and even to North America. His personal circumstances were actually quite happy in his later years. He had a, a small but devoted circle of young friends, uh, young family members, including his beloved nephew, Vladimir, his younger brother, Modest, who shared many of the same conflicts, uh, being also a homosexual. And in general, he was enjoying the adulation of a wild, a wide sector of Europe of the European public. He had accounted among his admirers the Tsar himself, many important figures. I don't think that speaking in strictly biographical terms, that Tchaikovsky had any real motivation or any real need for, for suicide or for fearing the wrath of his old schoolfellows from the Imperial School of Jurisprudence. So there's various aspects of the whole suicide story that are not entirely plausible, given the cultural circumstances of 19th century Russia, which in some ways were even more, more um, permissive than Victorian England, for example. There's a few other questions that I want to explore, but before we do that, let me just pause for a moment and ask our producer, Irene, are there any super chats at this point? Yes, uh, there is one by Phil with five pounds. It says, thank you for the presentation. Any thoughts of Tchaikovsky's inspiration for the power of his melodies? Okay, thank you very much for your contributions. And I'll check in again in a few minutes to see if there are any other super chats. Now, where I began to change my opinion in terms of my ex my acceptance of this court of honor story was probably about a decade and a half ago when I began exploring other sources of information about the composer, particularly a lot of the work of the musicologist Richard Taruskin, who himself was of Russian descent. And uh, there's one book in particular that I want to mention. One of the most important authors 
on the subject of Tchaikovsky's life, and particularly Tchaikovsky's death, is one Alexander Poznansky, a Russian musicologist who's been quite active in North America as well. Now, his most important book on this subject, which for to anybody interested in more information, I would highly recommend, it's called Tchaikovsky's Last Days, a Documentary Study. Tchaikovsky's Last Days, a Documentary Study by Alexander Poznansky. A really excellent book which lays out all the details, medical, forensic. It really is a documentary study. It's full of a lot of primary source material, including actual accounts from the doctors. There were four physicians who attended Tchaikovsky in his last days. There were all kinds of police reports, uh, regular public news bulletins during the period of Tchaikovsky's final illness, and many of which have never been translated into English before Poznansky compiles them in this particular book. I, I very much regard this book as a final definitive refutation of the whole court of honor story and the whole suicide story. Now, the question is, why is it that this suicide theory has persisted to this day? And when there's so much evidence against it, so much medical evidence, so much forensic evidence, if we were to accept that Tchaikovsky really did commit suicide, either by taking some kind of poison, supposedly Tchaikovsky took a poison which mimics the symptoms of cholera, that already is a very uh, tenuous claim. But even if Tchaikovsky isn't, to accept the suicide theory would mean it's really a massive conspiracy theory, which would, in, would have involved many of Tchaikovsky's closest relatives, including his brother and other siblings, many of Tchaikovsky's friends. It would have necessitated a cover-up on the part of the physicians who attended on the composer, on the part of the police and other authorities who had to observe very strict, any kind, very strict protocols anytime cholera was, was involved. So this really is a conspiracy theory. And what, what justification is there for it? I'm not, I'm not at all convinced. Uh, now I see there's another super chat here. Oh, I see there's a, there's a question connected with this. Sorry, Irene, your uh, your audio got cut off a little bit, so I didn't hear the full question. Any thoughts of Tchaikovsky's inspiration for the powers of his melodies? And that's a question from uh, Phil from his five pound super chat. Okay, that's a very good question. So let me pause for a moment and, and answer that. It's very important in discussing Tchaikovsky these melodies to understand a little bit about his musical influences and musical genealogy. The one composer who, who Tchaikovsky, whom Tchaikovsky admired the most from a, from a very early age was Mozart, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Tchaikovsky described his relationship to Mozart as one of passionate worship. He was a huge fan, particularly of the opera Don Giovanni, one of Mozart's most famous operas, certainly uh, throughout the 19th century. This was an opera that Tchaikovsky loved and that he knew very well throughout his life. But also Tchaikovsky was very much drawn the whole Italian operatic school, the operas of composers like Rossini, Rossini, Donati, Italian music in general, with its very song-like melodies, with its preoccupation with expressing emotion through melody, through lyrical melody. That, I think, had a very strong influence on Tchaikovsky's musical values and musical interests. But also Tchaikovsky was quite enamored with French music, not just and not just French opera, but very much French ballet. 
particularly the ballets of composers like Adolf Adam, who wrote one of the most famous classical ballets, Giselle, and also the composer Delibes, Leo Delibes, who wrote the ballets Coppelia and Sylvia, which were among Tchaikovsky's favorite musical compositions. And there's definitely a sense in which Tchaikovsky's own ballets, Swan Lake, The Sleeping Beauty, The Nutcracker, were influenced by the French school of ballet composition and ballet music. I would also stress that Tchaikovsky's non-dramatic works, non-operatic, non-balletic works, by which I mean his symphonies, his concertos, his other works for orchestra, are very much permeated by a sense of almost vocal melody, an almost vocal sense of song-like melodic character, and a strong feeling for dance. And this is something that Tchaikovsky was occasionally criticized for. For example, when he com completed his fourth symphony and he asked for an, an opinion for one by from one of his pupils, the composer Sergei Tanyev, and Tanyev says, yes, it's all very good, but your symphony sounds too much like ballet music, to which Tchaikovsky's response was, what's wrong with that? Surely you wouldn't expect me to write something which has no meaning whatsoever. So for Tchaikovsky, music was very much connected with the expression of vocal emotion, the expression of emotion through physical movement, through physical dance and physical movement. So returning now to the suicide story, I think there's actually a broader underlying theme, and this was really the source of my own error, that I, I heard the symphony number six, I understood its very funereal and depressing connotations, and that led me to a particular interpretation of, of this particular biographical aspect of Tchaikovsky's death. But since then, it's become very clear to me that one has to be very clear about separating a composer's life, the events of a composer's life, from what the music has to say. Last week, I did a little bit of a discussion of Beethoven, and I brought up the point that one of Beethoven's most cheerful, joyous works, his Symphony Number no. 2 in D major, was composed around the same time as the Heiligenstadt Testament. That's the, doc the document that Beethoven wrote around the time that he was coming to grips with his deafness and coming to grips with the fact that his deafness was likely incurable and irreversible. One of the most traumatic, depressing and tragic periods in that composer's life, and he was able to compose one of his most ebullient, one of his most joyous works. Keeping that in mind, it's not at all surprising that Tchaikovsky could have created one of his most positive, one of his most joy, one of his most, sorry, one of his most depressing, one of his darkest, one of his bleakest works, the Pathetique Symphony, the Symphony Number no. 6, at a time when his personal affairs were actually quite optimistic in terms of his professional prospects, his creative prospects, his personal life, his close circle of family and friends, and so on. So we have to always be very careful not to conflate what a composer's life and what his biography tells us and what his music actually tells us. So I have just a few final points that I'm going to make in a moment, but let me just check in. Uh, Irene, do we have any other super chats before we before we finish up here? Uh, we have no super chats, but there is an announcement to make. So tonight at 10 p.m., we have Life on Earth with Robert Nazir. Uh, he's going to be talking about stating the obvious. That's it. Did you hear? 
Uh, you're, you're muted. Yes. Uh, was that the only announcement, Irene? Yes, that's it. Okay. Thank you very much. So just a few concluding thoughts. Why has this, even though the suicide story and the court of honor story has been debunked by more recent research, research by, for example, Mr. Poznanski, by uh, Richard Taruskin and others, why has it persisted and why has it become so popular throughout the 20th century and even into the 21st century? Now, I mentioned uh, my initial skepticism when I first came across the court of honor story, the idea that Tchaikovsky had been involved in a relationship with the, the son of a nobleman and that he'd been on order to commit suicide by this court of honor of his school fellows. There, there's something clearly a little bit unusual or a little bit su suspicious about this story. Notice how similar that is to the story of Oscar Wilde which actually took place just a couple of years after Tchaikovsky's death. The idea that Oscar Wilde had been involved in a relationship with the son of some aristocrat. There was the, the highly publicized trial, followed by Wilde's arrest and imprisonment and eventual death. I think that's important because the story of Tchaikovsky's suicide and the story of Tchaikovsky's sexual orientation has always been closely connected particularly, I would say, in Anglo-American musical circles, with the critical reception of his music. In the early 20th century, there was always a certain patronizing or scornful attitude to Tchaikovsky's music, on, particularly on the part of British scholars and writers of, on music. And sometimes this carried over even into American writings on this composer. I think a lot of it has to do with the public perception of homosexuality in the wake of the Oscar Wilde scandal, the Oscar Wilde sodomy trial and his imprisonment and death. And this brings me to the point that there really have been two types of people who have latched on to the suicide story, the court of honor and suicide story in connection with Tchaikovsky's life. One group of people I would say is homophobes, particularly musicologists, who like the story of a gay man coming to a bad end. But another group more recently, in more recent decade, is gay rights activists who like the idea of a martyr, someone, that, someone from among their own who, whom they can hold up as a victim of society, as a victim of homophobia. Both of these groups have played a role in perpetuating this story, even though it's been debunked by so much medical and forensic and social and cultural evidence, there have been these vested interests who basically kept the suicide story on artificial life support. And I wanted to bring this issue up today as a way, not only of doing a certain justice to the composer, of trying to clear the air and set the record straight, but also giving us a clean slate for listening to the composer's music and understanding the music, hopefully on its own terms, without being burdened by any baggage having to do with conspiracy theories to do with suicide or any of the baggage having to do with the composer's lifestyle and his homosexuality. With that, I thank you all very much for joining me today for this discussion on the Daily Objective, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again very shortly on another topic. Thank you all very much.